Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're talking about gestational diabetes, its association with postpartum depressive symptoms, and maybe a new predictor that might help prevent gestational diabetes from developing into type 2 diabetes. Joining me is Jennifer Diaz of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. She is an author of an abstract presented at Endo 2022 entitled Predictors of Postpartum Depressive Symptoms in Women with Recent Gestational Diabetes Mellitus. Thank you for being here today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. So what is the risk of developing type 2 diabetes mellitus after a gestational diabetes mellitus diagnosis? And what is usually done to help prevent that gestational diabetes leading to type 2 diabetes? So the risk of type 2 diabetes after gestational diabetes is really built on the premise that pregnancy is a physiologic stressor that really gives an insight into what women might be at risk for later on in life. So even though the diabetes goes away once the patient has the baby, there's still that risk of endothelial or cardiovascular dysfunction that's underlying some of the physiology in that patient. And so there's a lot of data that shows that women who have gestational diabetes develop type 2 diabetes within the first 10 years of that pregnancy that's complicated by gestational diabetes. And there are some numbers that vary from anywhere from like 30 to 80% of women developed type 2 diabetes in that time period. Mm. But the numbers change based off of a lot of the study characteristics. Makes sense. And there's also a relationship I see between gestational diabetes and postpartum depressive symptoms. Um, What is that relationship and why is it important for us to understand it? A lot of the recommendations are really geared towards how do you prevent diabetes in general. So healthy eating, exercise, and weight loss has been one of the big predictors within that first year of postpartum. However, I think a lot of those recommendations aren't necessarily tailored to women who just had a baby Mm. um, and might be going through a number of transitions, first going into the pregnancy and then adapting to different lifestyle Uh, changes that are necessary to have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. And then again, once your sugars are back to normal and you're thinking about how do I take care of myself with a new baby as well. What did you hope to learn in this study that you're presenting here at Endo? Knowing that the lifestyle changes that happen during pregnancy and after pregnancy are really important for women to be healthy What are potential barriers that keep women from really adhering to what the recommendations are to prevent type 2 diabetes later on in life? And so the study was really looking at what are predictors of postpartum depressive symptoms that might impact a woman's ability to really be healthy and really fully step into this lifestyle that's recommended for them to be healthy. So there's this idea that there's this bridge period between when someone might have gestational diabetes, and then there's good activity, behavioral, (laughs) that you could engage in that might prevent a possible diabetes diagnosis. What we're trying to figure out is how might we know to make that go well, right? So what can we look at that might help us make sure that we're going to be successful? Okay, so why don't you tell us about your study and what you you looked at? 
And so my study is a secondary analysis um, of the Balance After Baby cohort study. And so it's a two-year lifestyle intervention. That's a randomized controlled trial that took place in Boston and in Denver, Colorado. And it's a way of providing support for women for two years right after they have their baby to really enhance their ability to practice these behaviors. So they're either in a standard of care, which is virtually here's some information on what you need to do to stay healthy, versus the intervention, which is they work with a lifestyle coach who's a registered dietitian. They meet at a certain frequency to talk about challenges, recommendations, how to tailor what is needed for them to be healthy based on their real life situations. So mm-hmm. there's kids, there's a job, there's partners, other family situations that might arise that don't necessarily aren't always accounted for when when physicians are counseling their patients on here's what you need to do. And so the structure of the program has really helped to bridge women and take advantage of the opportunity that they've made so many really positive changes in their pregnancy that they do have the ability to sustain if they have the support and kind of structure to do it. So what did you find? We found that predictors of postpartum depressive symptoms in this population, which had a larger N than the pilot study, which was done in 2009, we found that 19% of women had postpartum depressive symptoms in our population of 181 which was lower than the pilot. And we found that about 53% of women had moderate to severe perceived stress. And so when we looked at a number of factors that were predictive or were associated with postpartum depressive symptoms, we found that C-section, first GDM pregnancy, and perceived stress were associated with increased chance for having postpartum depressive symptoms. And that was just in a bivariate analysis. And then when we tried to control for those variables together to see which one was the most predictive, we Mm -hmm. found that it was perceived stress, which wasn't necessarily a shocker, right? Sure. You you can think, of course, if there is an increased stress burden on an individual, that might lead to an increased likelihood of depressive symptoms. However, we thought that it was interesting that the proportion of women that fell in each of the categories in terms of the percentages were were vastly different. And so we think about if this instrument was used as opposed to the Edinburgh postpartum depression scale, would you capture a a different number of women Mm -hmm. who might benefit from mental health support, for example? Right, right. And then also when you're thinking about building these types of interventions similar to balance after baby, could there be room for education or more support around mental health when you think about the intervention? So it's not just educating on make sure you go for a walk after a carb heavy meal or make sure you drink water, you know, or instead of juice, but it's also thinking about ways to make recommendations around decreasing stress Mm -hmm. um, or finding social support as you embark on this journey. Like you said, a lot of folks probably aren't so surprised that stress is so significant, you know, what you were finding here. For the purpose of your study, when you're looking at perceived stress, how is that defined? So we use a qualitative instrument, which is the perceived stress scale 10, which focuses on 10 key questions. But for the purposes of how we define perceived stress, it's just the feelings or thoughts that an individual has about how much stress they are under at a given point or time. 
Did anything in your findings surprise you? Yes, absolutely. We were really shocked that there weren't other predictors that Hmm. were associated with depressive symptoms in this postpartum period, partly because in the pilot, when we did the same analysis, or Jacinda, Dr. Jacinda Nicholas did this analysis on the smaller cohort of women, she did find that gestational weight gain and C-section were predictive. However, we didn't see that same association when we looked at it this time around. But one of the follow-up analyses that I've been trying to look at has been whether there is a mediation of perceived stress that happens as a result of this being someone's first GDM pregnancy. And so there seems to be some indirect effect of that because it's the first time that women are experiencing this kind of major lifestyle change of checking sugars two to four times a day, drastically changing their diet, incorporating exercise. They typically tend to be working women, finding time to come in for multiple appointments. That, Sounds that like even more stressors. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're a little shocked to see some of that, but it makes sense that some of those effects might go away in a larger sample size. But there's definitely room for some more examination or further analysis there. Yeah, let's talk about that. I get the sense that there is a lot more room to explore this a little bit more. So how might your findings influence or inspire gaps that are in research now that we might want to fill up or patient care down the road? I think it's definitely a key part of the conversation that a physician has with their patient. They receive a diagnosis to having a bit of compassion when patients aren't able to necessarily do exactly what a doctor has said and maybe thinking about what are some stressors that are coming up for you and is there anything that we can do as physicians or can we partner you or refer you to services that might be helpful. And then in thinking about the types of research studies that we're designing, and again, the interventions, are there components that address perceived stress, knowing that it may have a significant impact on your patients to adhere to the recommendations that you're providing, and also the goals that, or the ways that they'll attain the goals that you're looking to achieve in your study. This has been a fascinating conversation and still so much to learn. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your research with us. Thank you so much for having me and for listening a little bit more about my study. That's all for this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. If you'd like to hear more of these, check us out on endocrine.org slash podcast or Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying these, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks again. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.